0: Welcome back to the DealMakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMakers Show. So today we have a, a really amazing founder, you a know, founder that had a really incredible career, Uh, And then all of a sudden, he decided to venture into the entrepreneurial world. But uh, we're going to be learning a lot about raising money, raising money from more than VCs, from family offices and high net worth individuals. We're going to be talking about how to really think, you know, through the potential success that one could achieve, you know, when starting a business and how to measure that, as well as knowing, you know, how you're doing as a manager or testing your management skills, sort of speaking. And then also why to do or to start a company and how to go about it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Robert Fallon. Welcome to The Dealmaker Show.
1: Thank you, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to be with you. So originally you
0: were born in Boston and raised in the city. So uh, give us a walk through Memory Lane. Robert, how was life growing up?
1: Uh, I grew up in the city. I took a subway and streetcars to get to my high school, Boston Latin School. I went there for six years. It was a great school. It gave me a terrific uh, classical education, and uh, I will be forever grateful to uh, what I learned there. And they gave me the uh, the confidence to go ahead, you know, and uh, go on into college, uh, which wasn't necessarily an option for a lot of kids growing up in the city.
0: I hear you. I mean, obviously you were raised in a working class family. You learned the ropes of uh, figuring out, you know, how to make money quite early. In fact, uh, being a caddy in the summer for 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 people there in Cape cod and and even the president Kennedy was around, so how was that yeah
1: actually yes i was uh, I spent a couple of summers at the uh, Hyena sport Club and they had a caddy camp you stayed there and you basically caddied every day and you 'd end up at the end of the summer with a couple of thousand dollars, which was uh, for me that was that was very good money in those days, and I had the good fortune to be uh, uh, selected as one of the senior caddies to to basically caddy in the the loop of President Kennedy, he played golf three times that one particular summer, and I didn't caddy his carry his bag. I carried the bag for Pierre Salinger, who was his press secretary at the time. But it was a terrific experience, and I remember standing there at the first tee. Here comes the president, and he walks up, and there's four caddies all with a bag, and he greeted each of us, and he came to me, and he said, "Are you a Democrat or a Republican?" And I stammered and said, I, 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 I don't know, because I didn't. I was a kid. I was a kid. I was maybe 13 or 14. I didn't know the difference between the two.
0: That's pretty amazing. Now, you ended up going to Ohio University. And right after that, you know, you find yourself having a chat with the dean of Harvard Business School. You know, you were looking at the MBA program, but uh, it sounds like, you know, it took a different turn. So what happened there?
1: Well, yeah, I was accepted um, to Harvard Business School, and I attended for two days and collected all of my cases. And I remember sitting there, looking at this pile of business cases to read. And, you know, the the Vietnam War was at its peak, and I'd come off a kind of a campus as somewhat of a radical or a liberal. And I thought, my goodness, you know, I I followed this path to apply to business school and get in. And I should have been grateful because I would won a a fellowship. But I really didn't have the fire that burned within me to to sort of tell me why I was there. I was there because that was the expectation, you know, of uh, society. Um and my parents, I guess, and my mentors at the university. So I went into the dean and said, "Look, I'm going to go in the peace corps. Uh, could you accept me, you know, two years hence?" And to my surprise, they were very supportive and they said yes. So I ended up going in the peace corps and going to uh, Samoa, which is uh a well, wonderful experience. I was a math and science teacher at a Catholic missionary you know, boarding school up in the bush. We had our own plantation and I taught math and science. And I was there for four years. I had to reapply to Harvard Business School. But I remember writing down on my banana crate you know, desk, writing down an essay with a leaky big pen. Um, you guys took me four years ago. I can't believe you did that because what I know now about myself and what I knew then is completely different. And I explained you know why now I was ready to go to business school, so they must have liked what I had to say because they reaccepted me and I went back and and uh, I was fortunate to get the same fellowship back again.
0: So it sounds like those four years were kind of life-changing what What did you discover about yourself?
1: Oh uh, well, I learned basically that I could make change on a small scale because my kids that I taught you know in, in several cases I taught the same kids. My form three, form four, form five in mathematics and science, and I saw them when they took the New Zealand School Certificate examination because they followed the, Samoa so had been a New Zealand protectorate after World War One, and so they still followed the school curriculum. And I saw the evidence of kids that I taught actually exceeding and passing. And um, well, I, I just remember at one one <laughs> particular young man named Petello, who uh, who wasn't a great student, but and his after teaching for three years, he passed his New Zealand school certificate examination in mathematics. Now that was the equivalent of an old level in the English system, and you had to pass at least one old level to graduate from school to get your school certificate. And he passed, and so that year at the school graduation, Patello comes up, and the kids, of course, have lava lavas, and there's lots of fine pigs and mats, and you know, singing and whatnot. He's it's got this big, tall Samoan chief with the headdress and the the big knife. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, who is this heavy? And this guy's coming over to me speaking the most honorific Samoan. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. And Patello sidles over to me and says, sorry, Mr. Parra, this is my (laughs) Right? He had to speak English at school once they were beyond form three. And so he's telling me, this is my father. And then the father has got tears in his eyes and he's hugging me and he's saying, you've given my son a gift. And I want to give you a gift. His gift was he was the high tattooing chief for half the country. And tattoo was something that was created in Samoa. Ta- tattoo is actually where it comes from. Samoan word, tatau. And so uh, because of that, I have my, you can see it right here. This is my Samoan taulima. So uh, this is the original Samoan done in, and uh, with, you know, basically the tattooing combs and kettle nut soot, you know, and whatnot. But it was for me, uh, it was a gift from the country and the culture, and I treasured it, and I wore it proudly and, and still do. Um, it was funny, well, later on when I was a banker in, in Japan, of course, you know, people in, in Japan that get tattoos are Yakuza. And uh, every once in a while, I'd become friendly enough with the Japanese that they'd say, yeah. So, Nanda-yo, you know, <laughs> what, what's that all about? And I'd be able to like, explain the story, and it was really uh, it was wonderful. So I, I took the gift from Samoa.
0: In your case, you know, one, once you were, um, you know, finished with the experience there and going into into Harvard Business School, you got the MBA and it sounds like uh, you kept going on the international, you know, side of things. I guess, you know, first and foremost, before diving into, you know, what you learned, you know, from your experience in Citibank and, and you know, being in Asia as well, what got you so hooked into traveling how did you develop that interest and and why
1: uh, after my first year i was married my wife was a peace corps volunteer with me and when we finished our our service actually we we both extended you know longer terms and we taught in two peace corps training programs you know the newer volunteers so we made a little bit of money right because we didn't have any money before and we set off and traveled basically through southeast asia and then through South Asia and, and India and Nepal, and and um, it was just, it was wonderful to be young like that and traveling. And, you know, because we, we didn't have much, we didn't need much, right? We had basically like a little <laughs> bag with like some clothes and flip-flops and whatnot. And uh, it was just wonderful, but it gave me perspective on the world. And when I did get back to go to Harvard Business School, I, I decided that, you know what, I, I think I want to do something I don't mind the business world but I really want to be international and so I, one of the schools that was interviewing at my uh, at, at at Harvard was uh, was Citibank and Citibank at that time was sort of the the cock of the walk in terms of international banks Walter Riston was driving it and the firm was was sort of everywhere and I had seen Citibank branches in uh, Suva Fiji and Penang Malaysia and uh, Singapore and I just said well you know, I've got to go talk to this. So I, I went to the interview, and um, in the interview, and then these are very competitive processes, so I went in a little bit nervous, and the fellow I sat down next to me had a twinkle in his eye. He said, tell me about your Peace Corps service. I said, oh, wonderful. Of course, Now I'm off and running. And we had this wonderful conversation that went for about 45 minutes. He says, well, that's great. Thank you very much. And I said, well, well we didn't talk about it. He says, don't worry. He says, you're in. He says, I spent you know, three years in the Peace Corps in uh, Bahia, in Brazil. He says, you'll be invited down for the Super Saturday interviews in in New York. He says, and you're going to be in. I can tell you right now. And that was it. Wow. So in in your
0: case, when you went there to uh, Hong Kong, you uh, rose very quickly through the ranks and you ended up uh, getting quite a a bit of responsibility there and becoming senior. What do you think propelled, you know, that uh, rapid rise, you know, through the ranks?
1: Well, number one, the, the business was, was growing, you know, dramatically by leaps and bounds. And um, you know, I, I soon migrated from basically the Hong Kong business basically into APCO, the Asia Pacific Capital Corporation, which is a regional merchant bank that Citibank and Fujibank jointly owned. And so now I had Asia as my as my whole sphere of, of operations, whether it was Indonesia or Australia or Thailand. We were doing transactions all over the, uh, the, the, the sort of the Pacific Rim, and there just weren't a lot of people, and so therefore you got recognized. The business was good, and I just keep getting promoted. So I had no interest in you know going anywhere else, but just sort of ride this wave. And I, I enjoyed living in uh, in Hong Kong. It was a great regional base to be in. I tried my best to uh, to study Cantonese. And um, that helped, too, at least in terms of being integrated into the, the local scene. But um, I had a tremendous uh, opportunity to, uh, to learn and discover more about the various cultures and whatnot, and myself, and had a whole litany of, you know, transactions that I'd done that I was quite proud of.
0: Now, when it comes to, when it comes to business, you know, doing business in Asia, how is it different from doing business in the U.S.?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's, it's more relationship-focused. And you have to understand that there are differences. Asia just isn't one monolith. Um, there's a difference in dealing with Japanese as opposed to dealing with Chinese. There's a difference about dealing in Indonesia right, with Bumiputra as opposed to Chinese businessmen. And you, you develop kind of a sixth sense about how to navigate through this. But one thing you, you don't want to do is you don't want to be sort of a, the arrogant American that comes in as kind of a know-it-all. And tries to tell the local guys, this is how you have to do it, this is the way we do it on Wall Street, et cetera. That was never going to work and i I would see you know people come out you know from investment bank would send a guy out for two years, and essentially he he all the, you know these people would would they would get frustrated because they wouldn't take the time to understand the local cultural norms, and they had a difficult time being successful because the business just didn't come to them because of their name or their reputation. Uh, they weren't prepared to sort of open their eyes and and try to do it on on the basis of what the the locals you know are looking for.
0: Now, one of the areas here that uh, I think was probably incredible uh, because you were also able to experience the downturn or the I think like the the crumbling of a company that was with Drexel Burnham. There you actually worked in and you got to know Mike Milken, but the firm ended up. You know, into problems and and filing for bankruptcy. You know, a firm with amazing talent. How 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 did that happen? I mean, what did you learn, especially from from being in a in a situation of uncertainty like that?
1: Well, um, I was in Japan and uh, running the investment banking business for Citigroup in Japan, uh, which was quite prolific. And uh, Drexel reached out to me and um, and said, "Look, we you know." We, we want to talk to you. We have great expansion plans for Asia and we, you've got kind of a nice resume. So I flew back on one of my trips and, and ended up you know, going down to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, is it? Right? And Mike Milken was there. We met at, it's typical for, for him, at five o'clock in the morning as soon as a hotel coffee shop was open. And we talked for several hours. And he just was fascinated by everything that was going on in Asia. The amount of money that was japan at this stage was in their big bubble and whatnot and uh, he was convinced that um they had to have a footprint and so it was kind of a nice uh congruence and i i admired him tremendously he was he was immensely brilliant and insightful but asked a ton of questions he was always you know eager to learn and i was so disappointed because the business that we set up in japan and in asia was actually going going very very well and um we were kind of insulated from the problems that occurred, you know, in New York. And uh, I th- I thought it was somewhat unfair because a lot of the white shoe firms, you know, basically saw Drexel as an existential threat because of the amount of business that they were doing. And they didn't need to sort of get a left and a right on the tombstone. They did it all on their own. And uh, there was a sort of a gang mentality um, when, you know, Milken was being sort of, brought up on, on charges of there was insider trading or somebody didn't file a 13 D or whatever. And it was unfortunate that he was uh, forced out of the firm. And of course, without, without Michael Milken leading it, uh, the firm then ultimately struggled for the next two years. And, uh, and, um, it's, it's, filed for bankruptcy and it was stacked, absolutely stacked with talent. Uh, many of whom have gone on to, you know, very, very successful, uh, careers, you know, whether it's in uh, Jeffries or Kenny Mola's or firms like that.
0: Um, now, now for you, after after this experience, you know, you went to um, basically like Banker Trust, you that that ultimately became JP Morgan. Uh, and then and
1: then once oh, Banker's you're... Trust didn't become JP Morgan, Banker's Trust. I went to Banker's Trust for uh, not not quite two years, but I didn't really see that Banker's Trust had much to offer in terms of, you know. Uh, a footprint for really developing business in Asia. They were more interested in selling derivatives. And at that time I was basically being lured to join, you know, Manny Hanny, um, Don Layton, who ultimately became the vice chair at JP Morgan Chase, um, was in charge of international and said, You gotta come back and, and meet McGillicuddy and I did and and um the rest is history. I, I love those guys. It was a great bank. They end up merging with Chemical. Um I ended up running Many Hanny, and then Manny Hanny Chemical in in uh in Japan, then it had expanded to Asia, and then we merged with Chase. I ended up running all of Asia Pacific for what was then Chase. So Manny Hanny Chemical Chase, and then we merged with uh, with JP Morgan. Um so, so it was
0: And there, there there you go. Now now in this case, you know, right after this, you decided to step down and go to Columbia business school. Obviously you did a a few things uh, in between uh, during your stint at uh, Colombia, but it sounds like Colombia was the pivotal moment that pushed you into the entrepreneurial world. So, how did that? How did that come about? What was that incubation process? And how did you, you know, land it?
1: Yeah, I came back and uh, and there had been you know, yet one more merger, and I found because I'd run all of Asia, I was accustomed to running my own fief, as it were. And um, I got back to New York with the Connor office in Park Avenue, and I wasn't fulfilled. I found a lot of infighting because with all of these mergers, there's only so many people that can climb to the top of the pyramid. So I opted to basically, uh, you know, step out in 2002 and start teaching at Columbia because I'd done some guest lecturing there, and I was quite happy doing that. But I was doing it; I did it for one semester, and then immediately I was being asked to go, um, be headhunted and uh, join. As the CEO, the chairman and CEO of Korea Exchange Bank, Korea's largest international bank, which had fallen on hard times because of capital problems, not because of, you know, the, the fact that they had poor staff or poor, uh, you know, client base. Quite the contrary, they just they had a capital inadequacy problem because of a lot of bad loans that eroded their capital. And I had worked with KEB in my career. I knew the talent that it had. So I basically said, okay, I'll do this. Nobody else was offering me a. Hundred billion dollar bank to run, and so uh, I told my wife we're going to to go back to Asia. (laughs) She kind of looked at me and said, "Well, okay," (laughs) but she was very game. We went back, and it turned out to be a wonderful five years. The first two were were tough because you know the the Korean unions can be very very difficult, and uh, they saw me as as basically uh, you know Darth Vader. I was the first foreigner to be. The chair of a Korean public company, and mm-hmm. like they, they were always trying to somehow, you know, humiliate me or antagonize me in some way, and break into my office, shave their head, you know, and I'll take pictures and put it on the internet and whatnot, because I was trying to restructure the bank, and there had to be some restructuring. People had to be let go. So it was uh, an interesting uh, experience. I had a lot of uh, bullseyes on my back. <laughs> but ultimately we prevailed and i believe it or not you know by 5 years i actually became quite good friends with the you know Kim ji Sun who was the head of the uh, KEB union at that time who was very grateful to me when i was leaving to give me this wonderful gift of a uh, sun a model balsam model of Yi Sun-shin's turtle ship that defeated the japanese armada back in 1596 you have to understand korean history and japanese history but it it resonated with me and that was a great experience. One of the things that I had to do, though, was I had to give my AGM, right, as a, as a chair of a Korean company in Korean. So that was another tour de force. So I had to basically be able to sort of at least mime enough Korean that I was credible in terms of giving a speech. in it. And so even today, I can stand there and say, You know, about welcoming everybody. And thank you for taking time from your busy schedule to listen to me. But it was, it was very much sort of rote learning because I I'd, I'd learned enough Japanese and I realized that Japanese and Korean grammar were identical. And Korean's a phonetic language. You can actually read it. So once I became proficient at reading it, I could sort of sight read it. And once I had enough of an ear tone, I could actually kind of sound like I knew what I was talking about, even though I couldn't really understand when people would be talking to me. So um, that was quite a learning experience. But a little language goes a long way in any culture. And if you're willing to make mistakes and try, people will always forgive you.
0: Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C, all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then at what point, you know, does promontory therapeutics come into the picture?
1: Well, um, I I finished, came back in 2008. Uh, from Korea and uh, started teaching at Columbia, uh, International Banking Value at Risk, and enjoyed it very much and did that. But somewhere along the way, because I was a trustee of the Ohio University Foundation, one of these quarterly meetings, you know, trustee meetings, you know, they're always showcasing something at the quarterly meeting, you know, whether it's the math department or the medical school. And it was Dr. Athindra Bose, who was head of research, talking about this new class of compounds That he had synthesized and why they were great and they were going to be a terrific anti-cancer compound and he's got a national academy of science paper and i remember sitting in the front and and saying oh that's pretty interesting you know i'm sort of a uh, an amateur scientist i always like science and so i talked with him afterwards and he he said you you've really listened that's great i'll send you my pdf presentation i'll send you my national academy of science paper you can get a copy of my patent and You know, it seemed like every quarterly meeting after that, we'd somehow meet up, Dr. Bose and I, and have a conversation. And next thing you know, I'm going through the Edison Biotechnology Institute at the university, looking at mouse models, of which I really didn't have much background. But, you know, I mean, if you're willing to be open-minded and listen, um, and there's a lot available in the internet, you can kind of learn things. And so the more I saw his passion, and the more I tried to understand what he had done the more I said, you know, this this deserves a real commercial shot. So I marched into the president, Rod McDavis, and said, Rod, you know, this Dr. Bose's uh, the compounds that he's invented. I mean, you got you got to give this a commercial shot, right? You got to get this out into into the commercial opportunity. And he sort of looked at me. He said, Well, you're a finance guy. Um, y- why don't you tell me what we should do? Right? We're not Johns Hopkins. We're not MIT. We don't have this big Tech transfer, a sausage machine would just put it in the machine and out the door it goes. And I said, "All right, all right, give me six months. I'll come back and I'll tell you that you know what, what I'll do." And um, I really set out to do that. And I thought, to be honest, I spoke with oncologists, I spoke with VC guys, I spoke with people in the in the, the biotech ecosystem in Boston, and I was convinced that I was going to sort of come back to the president in six months and say you know, I, I did this, I did that, but it's not going to work for the following reasons. Thank you very much. And I would have extinguished my responsibility. But try as I may, I couldn't find the the, the sort of the chink in the armor. And I kept scratching my head, saying, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I haven't come across some, you know, unique, you know, uh, miracle drug. So what am I missing? Where is this thing going to fall apart? Is it going to be pricing? Is it going to be off target toxicity? Is it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the more I, I get into this, the more it was kind of like a, you know, sort of a just a very organic light blossoming in my own interest that, you know, this is an interesting little molecule here, this this class of molecules. And there was one particular one, which was the stereoantomer that we're developing called PT112. And I said, this is has got to be, I, don't, I, have, I need to look at more of this. And so next thing you know, I'm putting some money up and doing a, a patent freedom to operate, search, and and uh, trying to figure out you know what I'm going to do. And I was finished my teaching at Columbia, and I was down in the the deli, and I was talking to who is now my 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 dear colleague and, and friend and co-founder Matthew Price. Who at that time he'd, he'd graduated a few years earlier, but he was working in a small boutique you know biotech uh, investment bank, uh, and um, we were talking about the industry and. I sort of looked at some of his data and I said, well, look at this data. And I pulled out some of this IC50 data from that Dr. Bose had given me. And he said, well, where did you get that? And I said, well, I'm kind of thinking about doing something here. And he said, no kidding. He said, you're kind of a finance guy and you're going to do this. And I said, well, I, I don't know, but it's just I'm thinking about it. And he said, look, I'm single. I'm, I'm very entrepreneurial. If you're going to do something like this, he said, talk to me. I'd like to do something like this too. And it was very much very organic. And three hours later the napkins are all over the place and the crumbs and the coffee cups. We kind of said, Well, all right, let's take it to the next step. We never ever, you know, did this thing where you, you know, plant the flag, dare to be great, you know, soar with the eagles. We're gonna we're gonna build this, you know, uh this this huge success. But it was very cautious, step by step. Let's put a little money in, let's investigate this, all right. Let's buy, rent a little bit of space, and my Matthew, you sit there, and I want to do this, I want to do that. I kept teaching, and I taught for another two years up until 2012, when, when now we would licensed in the, the entire phosphoplatin suite of compounds from Ohio University, and we were hell-bent to get to the FDA to submit our IND application. IND is your investigational new drug approval. That is the first approval you get from the FDA that enables you to go forward and actually administer your drug to humans. And there's a whole series of protocols behind it and three years of work that you have to do preclinically, toxicology studies, chemistry manufacturing, et cetera. It has to be done to support your IND application. So I learned a great deal um, in doing that. But once we had the IND, now it was incumbent upon us to go out and raise money. And I, guess,
0: and I guess before going into, into the raising money, because I think there's going to be very interesting, just for the people that are listening to really get it, what are you guys doing at Promontory Therapeutics?
1: We are developing a, a novel small molecule immunotherapy that is immunogenic and osteotropic. Now, what do I mean by that? Immunogenic means this drug is, is selective and is towards cancer cells and will kill cancer cells in a very unique way. It's not a standard chemotherapy, it is immunogenic. So what it does is it kills cell in a unique way that basically causes the cancer cells to release signaling proteins that are picked up by dendritic cells that alert the immune system. And then you get this amplification of the adaptive and the innate immune system that basically then takes over. Because chemotherapy, you dose chemotherapy, when you take the chemotherapy away, the disease comes back so it interdicts the progression of disease but it never cures it Immuno an immunogenic compound if you get lucky will not only you know stabilize and, and stop the disease progression but will then recruit the immune system to take over and fight it you know for a much longer duration and what we've seen in our clinical trials and we saw this early on in phase 1 we had some patients you know with ex- with Small cell lung cancer, extensive stage. So this is the most pernicious kind of lung cancer you can get. And he said, this is a phase one trial. So you're doing dose escalation. We gave this guy uh, enough of a dose that he started to respond. Five, six cycles later, you know, we, we stopped the dosing because we had all of the safety data. And this guy never had another systemic therapy. And here we are now. It's almost four going on. It'll be close to five years later this guy is still alive, gone back to driving his truck and just think that, well, that was a great drug. Right. And so when you have this kind of a, an epiphany, it really, it it told me that, you know, God, good old Dr. Bose. I mean, he, he knew what he was talking about. And so that then um, was an, an inspiration that, you know, we're, we're, we're on the right track here because we could have easily had fallen on our face. The drug was too toxic or it just didn't provide any efficacy. And then we had along the way, some other instances of these, these responses that were just unusual in terms of their success. And yet (laughs) we'd find if we went to talk to some of the VC firms, some of these guys are just predisposed to be cynical. They just say, Well, yeah, but that's a one-off. That could be an idiopathic response, right? Which is a very easy thing to say. But what it shows is a lack of intellectual curiosity and an ability to actually, you know, see what's going on. And so what we found is that in terms of fundraising, we were able to attract high net worth investors and family offices, much more these days, the family offices. And the reason being is because two things. Number one, um, the capital is, is, uh, is more patient and more thoughtful in terms of understanding what they're about, and they really they're relationship oriented and they don't invest easily. but when they do that, it's very very you know um, I'd say patient capital because they encourage you don't take shortcuts, don't try to push the company to an IPO too soon, you know get the the clinical data, et cetera. So as we were developing my right, our capital base. This tended to resonate. And the second thing that was advantageous was we're in cancer. Now we're developing early signs that the drug is is actually quite interesting. And we would get responses from investors that would say, you know, I, I can give this money to my university, but I'm going to give it to you. Not because I think, you know, you're going to be a huge success. I, I know this is a risky proposition and drug development, you know, is a low probability of success, but because it makes me Feel good that I'm giving it to you because I think you guys will be very, you know, uh, professional in the way you manage it, and I hope that you will be successful because then I will feel like I've done something. And then they sometimes open up. It's cancer, right? There's a relative, there's a story. It's just they have a desire to want to do something. And you know, we're not an e-cigarette company. It's much easier for people to say "I, I like what these guys are up to. So the relationship side of it was important. And the fact that the mission that we were on was also important. And that resonates much more with individual investors and high net worth investors and family offices than it does with the VC guys. I'm not disparaging the VC guys at all. I know that industry very, very well. But they are motivated because they have to generate an IRR for their fund. So they've got, you know, institutional money and the institutional money is looking for, you know, um, plus alpha, they want a return that they can get disproportionate to what they can get just investing in, in uh, in the stock market. And You can get that in biotech if you guess guess well. So they're driven by get the company public, you know, get liquidity, try to get my return, try to get my IRR. Whereas that's not the case, you know, with the uh, the investor base that we have, and we've been very fortunate because of that.
0: And how much capital have you guys raised to date, Robert?
1: We've raised seventy-four million dollars to date, and we've just. Just launching a another private round for twenty million now, on
0: the capital raising side of it, you know finding those high networks, I mean there's probably like a bunch of people listening now that are like, "Oh my God, you know, venture capital firms they're very public, you know who is who you know who is investing in what family offices and high networks they're very private, in fact, they even hire people to make sure that they're not appearing on search and stuff like that, so what is a good way for finding out or, or getting acquainted with some of those family offices and perhaps, you know, being able to get money from them?
1: Um, I would, yeah, you're right. There is no, you know, uh, familyoffice.com that you basically get a list of all of the family offices. It really is, it's, it's a relationship business and you have to be introduced by a trusted interlocutor. And what we found is once we had one family office, invariably, if we were doing another capital round, they'd say you know, would you be interested to meet There's somebody I've co-invested with? And that has helped us. Plus, there are some family offices that we have that are very sophisticated in the health, the the health life science investment sphere. And so they have also relationships with other people and they tended to, uh, to introduce us around as well. So, um, yeah, it takes it takes uh, it's more effort because it's not as easy. You have to hunt around. But if you are if you if you're. Prepared to sort of develop the relationship, um, it can be in the long run uh, immensely uh, supportive for you. Particularly, take it you know during COVID, when our clinical trial enrollment basically was was in molasses because we had clinical sites like the Mayo Clinic say we're putting the brakes on phase one and two trial, you know enrollment because we simply don't have the staff that can handle it. We have too many outages, doctors are out, you know, clinical trial coordinators are out, schedulers are out, and so we just found that our enrollment started to slip well beyond our expectations. But, you know, here we are, we're burning cash, right? And you've got to get your enrollment up to get your clinical data.
0: So now let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: Ah, The vision of our company being fully realized. Um, It would either be... um, a successful, a successful uh, strategic collaboration, probably an acquisition by Big Pharma, somebody that has the muscle and the capital and the regulatory heft to bring this drug that we have uh, to basically improve patient care throughout the world. We have assiduously basically developed our, our IP, you know, our intellectual property patent portfolio internationally because of this. Our drug is a small molecule. So it's it's not, you know, it's not cell therapy, it's not gene therapy. So it's not might hampered by the the sort of the uh, the disadvantages that those modalities have of cost and quality. Uh, we're a small molecule. We can manufacture our drug. Um, it only needs to be refrigerated. It has a shelf life of of two years and counting. So it can be deployed, like to treat cancer patients in China and in Indonesia and in West Africa in eurasia right in south asia and this is my goal this is my my dream i don't think we've got the muscle to do that on our own so we have to then have a large farmer collaborator and i know you know given enough time because we've already had enough conversations and they're saying you know rowan you've got mature phase 2 data we we have to have a serious conversation because uh, what we see so far we like and you know they're cautious they're they're risk averse um you know we're we're quite hopeful that um, you know we're going to complete this phase two next year in the prostate cancer trial that we're doing. The data looks very good so far. Knock on wood, and uh, we know we have something which is a winner. But we have to get it financed into phase three, so that's going to require a series B. That's where we'll need to do the the substantial institutional investor round because now you're talking $100, $125 million, a hundred, hundred and twenty five million dollar series B. But we all have solid phase two data, and we all actually have had enough. Dialogue with institutional investors and say, "Yeah, you come back, and uh, we're going to scale your capital." That's the phrase they use, which is good.
0: That that sounds uh, amazing. Scale your capital. I love that. Now, Robert, if you were to go into a time machine and you go back in time to that moment where you were perhaps at, um, uh, you know, wondering whether or not to take this thing on, you know, after the presentation at Ohio University, and let's say. You had the opportunity of having a sit down with your younger self and you could give that younger self one piece of advice before, you know, pulling the trigger and 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 going at it with the company. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Alejandro. I mean, I, I think the converse of that question is, what have I learned, you know, from this particular path? And it is that, um, you know, you have to be prepared for uncertainties and and hurdles along the way. Um, This has been 12 years that we've been doing this. I I thought initially starting out would be about six to get our our drug approved or to get the company acquired. So I I clearly misjudged that. We didn't anticipate COVID. Uh, We didn't anticipate, you know, the fact that the biotech valuations in 2021 would peak. There'd be a lot of companies struggling, you know, trading at uh, negative enterprise values. All of those are headwinds. But at the end of the day. Right. We're encouraged because the the data that we we have generated, right, sustains us. It shows us, that we have something that works that deserves a commercial opportunity. And uh, by George, you know we're going to get there. I mean, I, I'm not going to stop until we have uh, got this company uh, successfully uh, launched, either as a, as its own pharma company, you know, as a public company raising money day in and day out, or will ultimately be acquired. And that's. The more likely case, because uh, that's a faster path to get our drug distributed, you know, uh, internationally. I love that.
0: So, Robert, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: R. Fallon at PromontoryTX.com. Easy enough. So, Robert, thank
0: you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well, and I'll continue to listen to your podcast.